Welcome back to The Long Short. Over the coming few months, we'll be bringing something a little different, the Perspective Series in partnership with KPMG. This podcast series will feature conversations with leading CEOs and founders of alternative investment firms from around the world. And today, we are excited to share with you one of a series of conversations we've had with them. Our guests share their visions on a variety of areas, including how to attract and retain top talent in the context of the fierce war for talent, as well as how to navigate the increasingly complex operational scaling challenges and much, much more. The discussions have been led by myself, Tom Kyo, co-host of Amos Long Short, and John Budzina, Managing Director and US National Leader for Market Development for Alternative Investments in KPMG. So sit back, we hope you'll enjoy the show, and thank you for joining us. Good morning, um, Ken. Thank you for joining us today for the AIMA KPMG sponsored series of the discussions with the leaders and titans of the hedge fund industry. Welcome. Uh, good morning, John. Nice to see you. Ken, you, you currently run a very extremely successful alternative investment firm focused on a variety of quantitative and discretionary alpha, alpha strategies with perhaps a emphasis on global macro. Could you just share a short history of Graham? Uh, capital, how it was founded? Yeah, uh, it's almost 30 years now. And, uh, you know, prior to starting Graham, I had uh, been the CEO and president of John Henry, which was one of the early managers in the uh, quantitative future space. And uh, in, uh, I guess it was 93, he and I saw things differently and we parted company. And uh, in late 93, early 94, uh, friends of mine in the business, Paul Jones and Mark Dalton, who run a very successful firm, Tudor, uh, and I talked about uh, me starting my own hedge fund, uh, and uh, it made uh, a lot of sense, uh, some of the things we were talking about, and so I began designing and developing trading systems uh, that sort of in, encapsulated things that I thought were different than others were doing in the space in those sort of early days of the industry, and in uh, I think it was June or July of 94, we started Graham uh, with these systems that I designed. And um, it was, uh, our capital base was proprietary. Uh, you know, uh, even in those days, investors were not going to uh, participate until you had some type of a track record and had built some credibility. So it was uh, Tudor's capital and my capital was our initial, uh, you know, uh, starting asset base. and. Um, we got off and running uh, in the second half of 94. And then in December 94, I remember going to Geneva to meet uh, some of my early investors, which were relationships of tutors. And uh, ultimately, a few of them decided to, uh, you know, based on their confidence and tutor to, to uh, give Graham a chance. And uh, we were fortunate enough in 95 to have a pretty good year, if I recall correctly. And that's kind of how we got started. Then uh, some years later, I think it was 98, uh, I decided to diversify not just into, to not just do uh, quantitative trading, but also to bring discretionary trading uh, to Graham uh, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which uh, wasn't correlated to the results of our uh, quantitative strategies. Uh, it wasn't then, and it frankly continues not to be correlated today, you know, and so We've been doing uh, quantitative trading at Graham for 29 years and discretionary trading at Graham for about 20, 24, 25. Great. And I'm sure along the way, there was many defining moments in, in your career and in the success of the firm. 
Could you just describe some of those that, you know, were particularly meaningful to you? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, I think about uh, how excited I was to, uh, you know, uh, get Graham up and running. And one, one memory uh, comes right to mind. I was driving to our new office space in Stanford, Connecticut uh, at some point in December or something of 94. And it was a Monday morning and I'm in my car. And I'm driving to work at about seven o'clock and everyone else on the road looks kind of pissed off. And I was so happy to be going to my new office space and, uh, you know, uh, beginning to get Graham really going. Uh, but, uh, you know, there were there were a lot of really interesting moments uh, in running a hedge fund over these last three decades. Uh, I can think about uh, the market of 2000, 2001, when, you know, sort of the tech bubble uh, broke and it was a very good cycle for what we did in trend following. We, we performed at a time and some other things are that, you know, at time our equity oriented investors really needed us to perform. Obviously the 2008 financial crisis was a crazy time. Uh, and, you know, it was uh, a time that brought a lot of stresses, uh, you know, in, into how we manage our business, how we manage risk and, Ultimately, we prevailed in 08 and had a good year, but it was it was not a, a particularly smooth process. And um, I think one of the uh, one of the things that we did I, it was really the result of, of, of the start of the financial crisis in 07, which was related to mortgage trading, which we had a mortgage trading team at Graham. We started having a daily risk meeting uh, sometime in the, I think it was the third or fourth quarter of 2007. And every morning at 9.30, we'd look at every one of our positions. We'd look at our counterparty risk. We would look at stress tests to see what happened if we had certain market events. Uh, we looked at what traders were doing well, our trading systems were doing well, what things weren't working. And just it, it, it was a mechanism for management to be hyper-focused on uh, the risk we were taking and performance and making sure they're really comfortable and confident in everything that we're doing. We probably have 4,000 meetings like that ever since we've had that daily risk meeting, you know, uh, for the last 14 or so years. And I think it's an important discipline uh, that's helped Graham, you know, get through some challenging market uh, events over time. Well, we, uh, we probably have some uh, interesting times ahead as well and interesting markets and, and I'll, Tom Kehoe of AIM is going to, go through some of the macro environment that we're facing. Tom? Yeah, it's great to speak to you again, Ken. Um, just taking a step back from it and looking at Graham Capital, could you provide a, a brief overview of the investment strategies that you pursue at your firm and, and why they are particularly relevant then during this economic cycle? Sure. Uh, well, Graham really does uh, a, a number of things. Uh you know, we do quantitative trend following, which most people are very familiar with. It's been around for a long time. We do more fundamentally based uh, macro uh, quantitative investing, which looks at things like value and fundamentals as well as just momentum. Uh, and it's, it gives us a somewhat less correlated way to perform in macro from a quantitative perspective than just pure momentum trend-based systems. Then we do discretionary trading, uh, which uh, most people are pretty familiar with at this point. And, you know, it can be, you know, uh, trading with momentum and with trends. It can also be very fundamentally based. Uh, it can be very sector based. 
Uh, it can be very short term, uh, whereas most quantitative strategies tend to be quite intermediate to longer term in nature. Uh, we also do credit investing at Graham. Uh, we also do quantitative long short equity. So I would say 80% of our alpha comes from macro uh, oriented strategies and then 20% more in the multi-strat category. Thanks. And then focusing on that 80% piece then, um, collective macro funds, um, for want of a better description, um, why did they outperform other hedge fund strategies over the past year? Well, they're not, you know, uh, they're not long beta, right? And so by definition, uh, you know, our strategies can be uh, long beta when it's a good idea to be long and in short when it's a good idea to be short. And we can be invested in asset classes unrelated to uh, beta that can allow us to generate returns. Uh, for example, last year was a big year for fixed income trading for us. And so, you know, as yields were rising, uh, one of the things that really gave us an edge is our economists in the second half of two that of 21 uh, made a very good call that the Fed was uh, really signaling that they were going to have a sea change in how they were managing, uh, you know, uh, uh, interest rate policy, and that they were much more hawkish than the market and other economists uh, were thinking of at that time. And our traders uh, listened pretty carefully to what they were saying, and we, on the discretionary side of our business, uh, had a pretty significant short, in, you know, short fixed income uh, portfolio in the second half of 21 and then going into 22. And obviously, with all the rate hikes uh, we saw, uh, you know, ended up, uh, you know, doing pretty well because of that. And then there was a pretty good move in the dollar that we were able to participate in. You know, the dollar, I think, went from something like, uh, you know, 120 to the euro to 108. And, you know, we were, we were pretty long uh, the dollar throughout that move and, and, and did well with that. And commodities, we made some money on as energy went up and so on and so forth. Uh, and then in the second half of 22, it was sort of more of about risk management and, uh, you know, not, not pushing it when markets sort of reached a consolidation phase somewhere around October or something like that. So all in all, pretty good year for us. And as you alluded to, it was a very dramatic um, magnitude of increases that we saw um, over the last couple of years when it comes to those um, interest rate increases, both um, in the U.S. and in Europe and, and here um, with the Bank of England. One of the things that people sometimes say or, or, or say, you know, they mentioned that, you know, macro was quiet for some number of years in the period between 2011 and 2021. And, and it was. And there's a good reason for that. If you measure uh, the amount of activity in central banks um, by how many rate increases there were over that 11 year period, if you look at the ECB, the Bank of England, and the Fed, and you looked at all of the rate hikes combined between those three central banks over 11 years, there were 13 25 basis point equivalent rate hikes. In contrast, in 2022, there were 49. So obviously, there was a lot more to work with if you're a macro manager. Yeah, I mean, those, those numbers are, are, are quite stunning. Um are we then, in your view, at the beginning of the end of this monetary tightening from um, central banks, or do you think there's further to run? Yeah, I, I think we probably are. Uh, you know, most market participants 
uh, you know, uh, think that the Fed today is going to pause. That's what we believe is going to happen. They're going to pause. They're going to evaluate the data. You know, there's some people think there may be one more rate hike. Uh, you know, it's hard to say for sure. I think they've, they've done a pretty good job in, you know, uh, uh, not going so hard that we're, you know, in a, in, a, in a market crash in a deep recession, but hard enough to, you know, uh, turn around inflation and slow it down. But inflation's sticky, and there's a number of reasons that it may stay sticky. And so I'm not one that uh, believes that we're going to go to a 2% inflation target in the U.S., for example, which is our inflation target, all that quickly. Uh, things like globalization uh, or green energy policies, uh, you know, uh, it, it, globalization was, was a very deflationary, um, you know, uh, influence for many years. Now, uh, sort of the opposite is true, where globalization is, is, is not so popular. Uh, you know, all the bottlenecks in the supply chain are not necessarily over. Um, and uh, you look at our green uh, energy policies, which with global warming, we probably need. But, you know, the, the, they also are not particularly helpful, uh, you know, when you're looking at energy supplies. So I think there's some combination of factors that are going to uh, cause inflation to be stickier than uh, maybe central banks would like, and therefore interest rates may be more elevated than they were, uh, you know, in the past. And we may see a return to inflation, although my base case right now is that inflation continues to moderate. So I just think it's going to be interesting for what we do uh, for a while. Yeah, and, and I guess given sort of all those interest rate hikes that have taken place and the inflation that, as you mentioned, is sticky and the, all the geopolitical forces and events that are that, that we're dealing with every day. So how would you describe the appetite of investors for these types of strategies in their portfolio? Yeah, you know, it, it, clearly people uh, saw last year that having non-correlated alphas is really valuable. And I think last year was a tough year for investors. Uh, and interestingly, in a year where we had really uh, pretty outsized positive returns, we had some uh, redemptions that were not insignificant. And one of the reasons for that was that we were overweight people's portfolio because we outperformed everything else by a lot. And so we had some sort of rebalancing that went on. If someone wanted us at 8% and all of a sudden we grew to 13% because we were up and everything else was down, you know, you had some redemptions to correct that. All of that's behind us at this point. And I think investors also were in a bit of damage control mode last year where, you know, uh, if you were a CIO and you were trying to answer to your, you know, uh, your board, uh, it, was a, it was a rough period because your hedge funds, in theory, which were hopefully not going to be so correlated with what the broader market was doing, in many cases were. And I think that was a bit of a, a rude awakening for some CIOs. And they are beginning to uh, reevaluate just how important it is to have non-correlation uh, in their hedge fund portfolio. And it, if you think about the earlier days in my career, you know, back in the 80s, all of the early hedge funds were macro oriented. I mean, all of the very famous traders in the 80s and the 90s, whether it's Bruce Kovner or Paul Jones, Louis Bacon, you know, Stan Druckenmiller, these were all macro focused people, George Soros. And, um, 
you know, and, and, and the whole word hedge fund, really, what does that imply? It implies that it's some sort of a hedge against everything else you're invested in. Of course, that changed in the 2000s as the most popular form of hedge funds became equity long short and many other strategies uh, that were correlated uh, to equities. And that was for a good reason. That's where, you know, a lot of the best returns were, um, particularly in that cycle between 2010 and 2020, where interest rate policies on hold and there were really these outside returns in a risk on uh, portfolio. And um, so as, as, as I look at the world today, now it's not so clear to me that uh, a very uh, heavy uh, weight towards equity is going to be as rewarding as the previous decade. And it makes much more sense to not just me, but to our investors to be truly diversified and try and have an allocation of macro where it's not going to be correlated to equity returns. And if there's a lot of activity with central banks, there's a lot to do in macro and it may have compelling returns. Yeah, so that value proposition, when people think about the 60-40 portfolio versus a diversified portfolio, it's really starting to 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 pay dividend now by diversifying. Um, if I could uh, pivot for a few moments, Ken, and talk about some of the disruptive influences, um, you know, we would describe them being ESG, sustainable investment and technology. Taking the first of those, how do you view... ESG and, and sustainable investment through the lens of your firm's investment strategy? And I'm thinking about primarily the macro piece and what investors expect from your firm. You know, ESG, uh, we, we've had, you know, some, some amount of uh, questions about that over the years. And my, my frank answer is that I don't really see how it relates to what we do. Uh, you know, if we were an equity shop, and we were, you know, and we, we were looking at different companies through the lens of who are doing things that, you know, are, are you know, ESG friendly. Uh, that makes some sense. But if you're a macro shop and you're trying to decide whether you want to be uh, short UK bonds versus long, you know, European bonds, or if you want to, you know, be short commodities, or if, if, if you think there's uh, a, a value in one foreign currency over another, ESG is just not, in my opinion, really relate to that. So it has, it has not really been too much of a factor in, in, at all in how Graham manages its business. KPMG is a global professional services firm providing audit, tax, and advisory services to many of the world's leading alternative investment management firms. To address the specific challenges and opportunities unique to alternative investments, KPMG has dedicated practitioners focusing on hedge fund, private equity, and real estate organizations. Our professionals devote their time to provide innovative and strategic solutions to alternative investment managers in areas ranging from strategy to operational and compliance functions. Through the knowledge of the industry-leading practices and customized technology systems, they provide advice and support that deliver value to these organizations and their investors. For more information, please visit kpmg.com. I guess one of the other forces that you that sort of you can't escape in any conversation um, in this industry is that the talking about the impact of open AI and 
and uh, chat GBT and how that might be used in the future by alternative investment firms. What's what's your view on or your early view on that? Well, it's it's something to watch really carefully. It's a, it's astonishing how fast uh, the world is moving, and and, and you know uh, I think uh, we want to we want to be uh, all in in terms of understanding how this technology can help us with alpha or other parts of how we manage our business and. Uh, I would be, uh, you know, uh, embellishing if I said we're using it for alpha in a big way today. We do use AI a little bit in some of our strategies uh, for alpha, but not in a really substantial way. Uh, And that could change over time as the technology continues to grow and evolve. Uh, So, we're, you know, we need to be uh, highly educated and you know, and, and prepared to evolve as, as the technology around us, uh, you know, also evolves. And, you know, maybe that sort of is, um, ties into another point I would make, which is how do you stay successful as a hedge fund over, you know, decades? Uh, and the answer is you can't stand still. You absolutely have to evolve. You absolutely have to continue to innovate. Uh, you know, if I think back to the early days of, my career, you know, trend following was a very popular way of making money in markets and it still is. And it's still like the year, likely last year I had a great year, but we've had to be creative in how we do it. And we have, we've had to be innovative in developing other sources of alpha grams. So we're more of a multi-strat with a, you know, macro focus than a firm that can only make, uh, uh, you know, a return in one very specific set of market uh, conditions. When we talk about AI, we talk about generative AI, ChatGPT, OpenAI. I mean, also AI can be misconstrued as being machine learning as well. How 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 do you view it in terms of how you might use it now? Is it more the, the latter, machine learning? Yeah, we're definitely more. That's a very fair answer. Yeah, we're much more focused on machine learning. Um, and you know how it how it interprets data and how it may learn from the data and generate alpha signals accordingly, as opposed to ChatGTP, which is quite a bit different than that uh, in what it really does. Okay, useful to know. Um, thinking about then the priorities for for Graham Capital over the coming five years, you've mentioned yourself you're you're in business over thirty years now. Um, what are your priorities? Have they changed in any way? Your priorities looking out for the next five years? Uh, you know, to be really honest, not not so much as people might think. I mean, our number one priority has uh, always um, been uh, to try and have the best alpha with conservative risk management. And that priority, I don't see it changing. Now, how do you get there? Uh, one answer is you have to have the best people. And you have to have a culture which attracts the best people. So part of that, of course, is always compensation. But part of that is how you treat people, how you mentor people, how people can grow in their career at your organization. And at Graham, we, we enjoy quite a number of people that have been with the firm for over 20 years. Uh, a really large number of people have been over with the firm for over 10 years. And I think uh, one of the real keys to success in any business, but particularly the hedge fund business, is who are the people that work there and are they happy and do they want to stay? Because uh, it's, it's, it's always interesting to meet new people. It's always important to have 
uh, people join your organization and bring fresh ideas and, and, and so on. But it's it's really important to retain your top talent. So that that's a, a, a priority of ours. I would say innovation is a priority of ours. Um, you know, we got in the long, short quantitative equity business a couple of years ago. Uh, we're very excited, cautiously optimistic about that as a new source of alpha for Graham. Uh, and, uh, you know, it takes time to get it right. It takes time to, you know, to, to build a business uh, that is, uh, you know, uncorrelated and quite different from what you've been doing in the past. But because it's quantitative, it's, it, 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 it you know, it, uh, it relates very well to what we do well at Grand. So I'm pretty enthusiastic about that. Uh, and, you know, we continue to pursue uh, other sources of alpha that can uh, diversify our firm and diversify the returns for our clients. Those are those priorities are not so different from what they've been in the past, but they, they continue to be on my mind. And, you know, on my mind also is making sure that my senior management team can be as successful running Graham as uh, I was when, you know, I was younger. And uh, I feel really good about the people that we have at the helm of Graham. Yeah, I mean, you, you've touched on it already about talent and people being your most important asset. Um is it fair to say when you think about the business that Graham, you, you touch on the, the talent that you're looking to attract and retain, that's a combination of the data scientists, the quantitative people, and those who can build a business. Is that fair? What would you be looking at? Yeah, no, and also very importantly, strong discretionary training talent. Um, you know, uh, a very, very important part of our business at Graham for over 25 years now has been our discretionary training business. And, you know, that's very people sensitive. Uh, that is, they, 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 of course, need a lot of data and technology to support them, but these are people making decisions. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's quite competitive, as you probably know, to find those, the, the people that are truly not only experienced, but, but, have a real edge and a real talent and are also good at managing risk. But that's something we've been doing for a long time and we continue to really prioritize it, Craig. And can your, uh, obviously your firm is part of a, a broader um, alternative at, alternative investment at, uh, management business, um, you know, in the entire hedge fund industry. Um, how do you see, like, when you look at the trajectory for the industry in the coming years, you know, how optimistic are you about, you know, sort of the, the, the fortunes of the hedge fund industry as, as we look out the next five years? You know, I, I feel positive. I, you know, I don't think there's some wild euphoria that we should all be, uh, you know, ex, you know, uh, feeling or, or something, in, you know, uh, in that, from, from the perspective of, am I confident that the industry is going to grow? I think it will. I think it, you know, it's going to grow, uh, in a in a moderate but healthy way, if that is a reasonable answer. In other words, I don't think it'd be great for the industry if our assets were to double in five years. I don't think we have the capacity to generate the alpha that our clients are looking for us to generate if we simply were awash in new uh, capital all the time. So I like the idea of the industry growing five or ten percent a year, some number like that. That to me would be very healthy. And, uh, and and would be manageable. And, and structurally, when you look around, you see so many firms setting up multi-strat firms as opposed to the single strategy hedge fund. 
uh, even at the outset, even at, you know, even emerging managers are doing this. Um, what's your perspective? Is that the new is that the new protocol for the industry? I'm not so sure it's going to make sense for all the people that are trying to do it. It's really, really hard to have one style of alpha and get it right, much less have, say, 10 different styles of alpha and put that all together and do any of it well enough to really distinguish yourself. I understand why it's so appealing to people who look at either Millennium or Citadel and see, boy, that what a great business model that is. And I don't disagree. It is a fantastic business model, but, you know, it's not so easy to replicate what they do. And I, I think that um, a more successful path for the majority of people who are starting funds is to figure out what differentiates you in one particular style of investing and do that superbly. And if you do, you'll be successful. That leads nicely actually to, to, to my next question, which is um, what advice would you give then? I think what you, you've answered it is differentiate yourself, distinguish yourself to any would-be startup hedge fund business. Um, knowing what you know, um, being in the industry as long as you have, like what single piece of advice? Is it that just to be unique? Well, look, uh, uh, there are a few things you absolutely have to do right. You have to generate compelling returns. Um, not to state the obvious, but that is really important to any investor. And it's going to be important to uh, distinguishing yourself and attracting capital over more established firms. You have to have some sort of alpha edge. Uh, I would say you want to be really good at risk management. That's something that uh, sometimes investors are skeptical that younger managers are going to have the judgment that they need to have. So you want to you want to make that a priority if I were starting a fund. Uh, you need to be transparent with clients. Uh, when, you're, when you're starting a fund, you don't have the luxury to say, we're not going to uh, disclose to you how or why we make money. Uh, just look at our returns and that ought to be good enough. That People are going to ask a lot of tough questions. You got to be prepared to answer them as candidly and openly as you possibly can without, of course, giving away your IP. Uh, and I, I think, you know, perhaps um, the simplest answer is you got to put yourself in your investor's shoes and say, who is the kind of person I want to do business with? Are they reliable? Are they straightforward? Are they accessible? Uh, are they the kind of person that I have confidence in, not just in terms of how they're going to perform, but who they are as people? That, if you, if you, that's the part that shouldn't be so hard to get right. In terms of headwinds then for the industry to contend with, what do you believe then might be the key risks looking out for the next five years for the industry? Well, I think the, you know, here's one that uh, I'm thinking about today is that, you know, we've had, um, you know, quite a bit of, of, of hikes, you know, globally between the three major central banks, right? And, if you believe, and I do, that that's going to uh, dampen, dampen uh, the global economy and dampen earnings uh, at most companies, you know, in theory, stocks look a little expensive at their current PEs. And, uh, and, and perhaps it would not be so unreasonable to exceed, uh, you know, a, a bit of a correction in, in risk assets. Um, that's never been great for hedge fund investors who are 
uh, allocated to hedge funds that are pretty correlated to beta. So I think that's something to keep an eye on in the short run. Um, ultimately, that will also mean an opportunity, right? Because uh, if we get a correction, it'll be a pretty good opportunity for managers to differentiate themselves from broader passive indices. So it's just something to focus on or, or keep an eye on. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, another headwind is just capacity. Uh, I think it's very healthy for our industry to grow some. I don't think it's, it's uh, so great if we were to grow exponentially. Uh, and so we're conscious at my firm of being thoughtful about how much capital we manage and making sure that it's not a compromising or alpha. And I guess maybe the counter to that um, discussion on risk, what do you see as sort of the greatest opportunities that the hedge fund industry has in the coming years? Well, you know, it's always hard to know that in advance, John. Uh, and if we did, we trade accordingly. But, you know, I, I'm excited about uh, the opportunity in rates trading. I think with all of this central bank moves that we've seen uh, in 22 and, and more in 23, um, you know, there's going to be an opportunity on the long side of bonds at some point that's going to be pretty compelling. Uh, I think watching Japan is interesting. You know, they've had, uh, they continue to stick to essentially a ceiling on, you know, uh, their interest rate policy of 50 basis points for the tenure. Uh, yet they have inflationary pressures there. Are they eventually going to have to, uh, you know, let go of that cap? That's going to be interesting in terms of trading and participating in Japanese markets. Uh, the geopolitical landscape continues to be very interesting. And, uh, you know, we've got an election coming up in 24 in the U.S. that is obviously going to be uh, really unpredictable. So there's there's plenty uh, for a manager to keep their eye on. And and I think, you know, lots of potential opportunities. Um, but, you know, you take nothing for granted and, you know, one day at a time. Ken, you know, outside of the day job, uh, you 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 do a lot of work for charity as well. It'd be great for our listeners to hear a little bit about some of that charity work, in particular Robin Hood Foundation. I mean, what is that about, and you know, you know how how have you been um, working with that foundation and and progress to date? Sure. Uh, well, Robin Hood is uh, an organization very close to my heart. You know, uh, I don't think I'd be where I am today if I hadn't started my career in New York. And uh, Robin Hood's charter for 35 years has been fighting poverty in New York and trying to help people who are not as fortunate as us uh, have a chance to be uh, successful and uh, break out of poverty. And so I've been on the board of Robin Hood for seven or so years and I chair the development committee. And, you know, I, I work very closely uh, with, that with that organization to try and make sure that we're as successful as we can possibly be in terms of uh, changing people's lives. Um, well, look, Ken, this has been great. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. And um, thanks for sharing your views on the industry and sort of your critical role in, in shaping um, our, um, our industry. So on behalf of AMA and KPMG, uh, so the entire alternative investment industry, thank you. John, you're very welcome. Uh, thanks for your interest. And uh, Tom, thank, thank you, and uh, it's good to see both of you guys again. And, uh, you know, don't hesitate uh, if there's anything you need me to follow up on. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Perspectives, done in partnership with KPMG and part of AMA's The Long Short Podcast. We trust you found the discussion both interesting and insightful. You can get the latest episodes by subscribing to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, or streaming directly from AMA.org. Thanks for listening.